It was 1.55 p.m. on April 3rd, 1996. Flight IFO-21, a U.S. military passenger jet, was five minutes ahead of schedule. The journey from Bosnia to Croatia should have taken under an hour. But today's weather was less than ideal. Air Force Captains Ashley Davis and Tim Schaefer called their destination for a climate report. It was overcast with patches of rain, nothing these pilots hadn't navigated before. At around 2.54 p.m., the plane passed over the radio beacon outside the airport in Dubrovnik, Croatia. They were traveling slightly faster than the recommended speed, but there were some dignitaries on board. The least these pilots could do was keep them on schedule. As they approached, the captains told air control they were ready to land. But an off-duty controller named Leandra Gluhan knew that wasn't the case. Gluhan lived close to the airport, and if a plane was on course, it passed in front of her house. So when she heard the roar of a jet through her rear windows, she knew something was seriously wrong. Three minutes after the plane contacted the control tower, the clouds cleared. It was then the captains realized they were doomed. St. John's Hill was directly in front of the cockpit. The aircraft sped into the mountaintop at a speed of 172 miles per hour. The impact clipped the engine and the right wing before snapping the tail. The plane skidded down the slope, sending 35 passengers to their death. Amongst the bodies were respected members of the United States Air Force, the Commerce Department, and a reporter for the New York Times. But the most memorable was Secretary of Commerce, Ron Brown. He may have been the reason the plane went down in the first place. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on U.S. Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown. Appointed under the Clinton administration, Brown was the first black official to lead the Democratic National Committee and serve in his cabinet position. In today's episode, we'll follow Ron Brown's career from his time in the National Urban League to assisting in the election of Democratic President Bill Clinton. Then, we'll look at Ron Brown's unexpected death in 1996. On our next episode, we'll unpack the dark side of Secretary Brown, detailing his illicit affairs and political corruption. We'll also analyze the April 1996 crash, its potential cover-up, and who benefited from having Brown dead. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 1955 was a year of walking contradictions, ripe with both social progress and degradation throughout America. In Alabama, a 26-year-old minister named Martin Luther King was leading a bus boycott in defiance of segregation. In Mississippi, a 14-year-old black boy named Emmett Till was murdered for allegedly saying the words, Bye, baby, to a white woman. Meanwhile, the 20th century's first black baseball player to play in the nation's major leagues, Jackie Robinson, was about to help lead the Brooklyn Dodgers to a World Series win. Coming of age during these confounding times was a 13-year-old black American named Ron Brown. That summer, his life changed when he shook the hand of Vice President Richard Nixon at the Hotel Teresa in Harlem, New York. Brown never forgot the moment he stared into Nixon's smug face as they smiled for the cameras. We're not sure if it was Nixon's demeanor, his policy, or something he said, but the boy knew from that moment on he would be on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Whereas Nixon was a staunch Republican, Brown would become a consummate Democrat. Ron Brown showed qualities of a great political leader as early as age five. He was already reading the newspaper, studying French, and sharpening his social skills. His cousin Bobby Jones recalled, even as a youngster, he made you feel that you were the only person he wanted to talk to. This was thanks to his father, Bill Brown, who was a good role model. Bill worked for progressive government programs like FDR's Federal Housing and Home Financing Administration. His job was to secure homes for low-income families, but his work moved his own family around the country, making it hard for young Ron to establish normalcy. In 1947, Bill began managing Harlem's famed Hotel Teresa. The location was an upscale destination for black celebrities, athletes, politicians, and civil rights leaders. The Browns took up residency on the top floor of the hotel. 
Here, six-year-old Ron was exposed to a life of luxury. Guests spoiled him with trips to plays and sporting events and introductions to celebrities, experiences that were rare for a black boy growing up in 1950s Harlem. But later that decade, the family fell on hard times. Bill lost his job and moved his family to the suburbs. He sold beauty supplies and insurance just to get by. The comforts of their previous life were a distant memory, one that took an emotional toll, causing Ron's parents to file for divorce when he was a teenager. In the aftermath, Ron gave up on his academics. Free time that should have been dedicated to his studies were spent placating his mother's depression. Despite his lack of focus, Ron graduated with an acceptance to Middlebury College in Vermont. When Ron Brown arrived in 1958, he was one of only three black students enrolled in the university, but he wasn't intimidated. Brown's confidence allowed him to achieve many firsts at Middlebury College. One of the most defining moments was when he became the first black man to join Sigma Phi Epsilon, a previously all-white fraternity. Unfortunately, Brown placed too much emphasis on perfecting his social skills, his academics declined, and he flunked out of Middlebury. But the 18-year-old saw the pitfall as another obstacle to overcome. Brown used his powers of persuasion to negotiate with the college administration, winning his way back into Middlebury. It was a shrewd skill, one that would prove useful throughout his career. On Labor Day weekend, 1959, Brown's life changed forever. He met the love of his life, Alma Arrington. The pair had a lot in common, having both grown up in middle-class black families with similar interests. For nearly a year, they exchanged letters from their respective campuses. Meanwhile, Brown enrolled for Middlebury's Reserve Officers Training Corps. The honor of serving his country in the ROTC coincided with his marriage to Alma in the summer of 1962. Their love was put to the test when Brown deployed to Korea in 1966. It was there he received his first taste of leadership. He trained soldiers assigned to the Korean augmentation to the U.S. Army, otherwise known as Katusa. Essentially, Katusa was a military ambassador program, bringing in soldiers from the South Korean Army to work positions within the U.S. military. Brown rewrote the curriculum for this program, turning it into one of the best institutions in the Army, according to his lieutenants. After returning home in 1967, Brown was faced with a difficult decision. Renew his service or continue life as a civilian. It was at this crossroads that a serendipitous opportunity came his way. Brown learned of a job opening at the National Urban League, a nonpartisan civil rights agency who fought for social justice on behalf of the black community. Essentially, the League helped secure jobs, education, and housing. Brown became a trainee advisor at the Bronx, New York branch. His task was to find businesses with job openings and establish training programs to prepare black candidates. The Urban League was also supportive of its own employees. With their flexible hours, they encouraged staff members to continue with their degrees. Brown took advantage of this opportunity by attending law school. 
Between 1967 and 1970, Ron Brown studied law at St. John's University. Meanwhile, America was experiencing unprecedented changes when it came to social justice. The new left pushed the boundaries of sexuality, feminism, and abortion. The Black Panthers stormed the California Capitol building, demanding equality for all. Campuses nationwide felt the effects of Mario Savio's free speech protests that rocked UC Berkeley. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. When the Ohio National Guard opened fire on Kent State students protesting the Vietnam War, the landscape of American universities changed drastically. St. John's was no different. Brown used his resources from the league and encouraged the school's administration to sit down with its student leaders and black power groups. As one of the students leading the negotiations, he persuaded the faculty to adhere to their demands. And thanks to his efforts, St. John's began hiring more black teachers and enrolling more black students. In the spring of 1970, Brown graduated with his law degree and passed the New York bar exam the following year. Even with his shiny new credentials, Brown remained loyal to the league. At age 30, he was promoted to their general counsel, reviewing the organization's upcoming plans and programs to make sure they acted in accordance with the law. A couple years later, he was named director of the National Urban League's Washington Bureau. It was the perfect fit for Brown, who had known since age 13 that he loved rubbing elbows with Capitol Hill's elite. Now, he'd be the liaison between the league's programs and federal agencies. Brown's skills as an intermediary did not go unnoticed. Some six years later, in the fall of 1979, the campaign manager for Senator Ted Kennedy called. He wanted to know if Brown would consider a new position helping Ted Kennedy become president. As in any campaign, risk was involved. These operations could run out of money, or in a more likely scenario, Kennedy could lose the election and Brown could be back to looking for work. But that didn't matter to Brown or his wife Alma. Despite having a mortgage and two young children, she supported his transition into politics. So he quit his job at the League and joined Senator Kennedy on the campaign trail. Officially, Brown's job was to help with political strategy. But his real job was to attract the support of black Americans. Coming up, Ron Brown secures another first with the Democratic National Committee. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four-year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. 
From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In December 1979, Brown found himself on Senator Ted Kennedy's estate in West Palm Beach, Florida. He'd reached paradise, both literally and figuratively. Here he was chatting political strategy with a potential president of the United States. The Democratic primaries were right around the corner. Kennedy knew he stood a tough chance winning against incumbent president Jimmy Carter. But Brown didn't see it that way. As a man of firsts himself, he had faith Kennedy could win over the black vote and secure the Oval Office. As part of their strategy, Brown suggested Kennedy spend time campaigning black churches and news outlets while developing relationships with black celebrities and organizations. But the campaign's lack of funds made outreach difficult. Kennedy's team barely raised enough money to pay their own employees. Not to mention, the senator was polling poorly in Iowa and New Hampshire, important states for the nomination. Brown's cool head and positive attitude kept Kennedy in the running. In fact, his soothing demeanor landed him the role of deputy campaign manager. After that, Brown's newest challenge was a sizable one. He was tasked with winning over the state of California. And since the campaign no longer had money to produce ads and purchase airtime, Brown got creative. He used what little money the Kennedys had to create inexpensive commercials and air them on low-cost markets. It was Brown's ingenuity that won Kennedy the vote in California. After that, people started asking, when was Ron Brown going to run for office? Despite Kennedy's progressive policies and Brown's sway with the black community, the senator never made it past the primaries. In August 1980, Kennedy conceded the nomination to Jimmy Carter at the Democratic National Convention. Let me say a few words to all those that I have met and to all those who have supported me at this convention and across the country. There were hard hours on our journey and often we sailed against the wind, but always we kept our rudder true and there were so many of you who stayed the course and shared our hope. You gave your help, but even more, you gave your hearts. And because of you, this has been a happy campaign. You welcomed Joan, me, and our family into your homes and neighborhoods, your churches, your campuses, your union halls. And when I think back of all the miles and all the months and all the memories, I think of you. And I recall the poet's words, and I say, what golden friends I had. 
It didn't take long for Brown to get back on his feet. Thanks to the Kennedys, he became the deputy chair and the general counsel for the Democratic National Committee in 1981. The organization was the governing body for the Democratic Party, helping to get their candidates elected on a local, state, and national level. As the committee's lawyer, Brown needed a firm to call home. So his old boss, Kennedy, put in a call to one of the most authoritative practices in the country, Patton, Boggs, and Blow. And they didn't just hire Brown. They made him a partner. Brown's salary went from around $65,000 a year up to a reported $200,000. Now, Brown could resurrect the comforts he missed from his childhood. The cushy job paid for expensive cars, fine dining, and prep schools for Brown's kids. Under the firm's unofficial slogan, you eat what you kill, Brown knew he'd have to bring in some big fish if he wanted to maintain this lifestyle. At first, Brown juggled his role with the DNC and the firm with ease. His job as deputy chair meant Brown had his eye out for fresher, forward-thinking Democrats to fill the party. One committee official remarked how Brown was single-handedly responsible for bringing more women into the policy-making circle. Meanwhile, over at Patton Boggs and Blow, Brown was perfecting his skills in lobbying meaning he influenced political decisions on behalf of powerful companies and organizations. Brown's job was to introduce these clients to federal agencies and officials who might sway the law in their favor. No matter how corrupt, Brown always saw a way to rationalize his client's cause and frame it with a humanitarian angle. For example, one of Brown's most dubious clients was the government of Haiti. In 1983, Haiti was ruled by a dictator named Jean-Claude Duvalier. Haiti was looking to secure federal aid from the U.S., so they hired Brown to lobby for those funds on Capitol Hill. According to Brown's daughter Tracy, her father took on the fascist regime for the good of its people. He didn't believe the citizens of Haiti should be punished for the actions of their leadership. Except Brown got more out of the transaction than heroism. In Tracy's book, The Life and Times of Ron Brown, she claims Haiti wasn't receiving any government aid from the U.S. at the time, mainly because they'd been violating human rights policies. According to her, Brown convinced the Duvalier regime to change how they treated their people. If they could prove they were evolving, the U.S. government would be more inclined to give them federal aid. But Jack Cashel, author of Ron Brown's Body, says this wasn't exactly the case. According to Cashel, Haiti was already getting federal relief from the United States, $38 million a year to be exact. What Brown did was manipulate Haiti's image in order to secure them more funding from the American government. In doing so, Brown managed to up the dictatorship's pay to $55 million per year. All of which might have seemed above board had it actually benefited the people of Haiti. But Brown reportedly made sure the money went directly into the pockets of Duvalier, rather than private aid programs. It was out of this relationship with Haiti that Brown began his signature trade missions. The goal of these trips was to introduce government officials and CEOs to foreign countries, all with the hope of sparking international business opportunities. 
Specifically, Brown wanted to introduce black-owned American companies to the Haitian economy. Problem was, according to Cashill, the businesses he introduced them to were owned by the dictator Duvalier and his associates. And one of those black-owned companies, called Harmon International, belonged to Ron Brown himself. In the end, Cashel claims that Brown made a significant bonus, collecting a cut of the imports and exports from Haiti while claiming it was for the good of the Haitian people. Then, in 1985, a constitutional referendum gave the Duvalier regime more power than ever before. It reconfirmed him as president for life and gave him the power to select a prime minister as well as his next successor. The people of Haiti had reached a breaking point. That year, citizens rose up against the Duvalier regime, and the Reagan administration suspended all aid to the country. But that reportedly didn't stop Brown from trying to lobby it back. The Haitian revolt was successful. The following year, Duvalier left his post and fled to France. But a former associate of Brown's named Nolanda Hill claimed that the corporate looting didn't stop. It's unclear for how long, but Brown apparently continued to profit off of the Haitian people even after the fall of the fascist regime. This history with Haiti would continue to haunt Brown for his entire career. Despite being one of the firm's biggest money makers, Brown felt unfulfilled. He yearned for his days in public service and decided it was time to fully immerse himself in politics. In November 1988, he calmly gauged Alma's perspective, saying, quote, Honey, you know, I'm really thinking I'd like to run for chairman of the party. He was referring to the highest ranking position in the Democratic National Committee, a seat that had only ever been filled by white men. Brown must have sensed opportunity on the horizon, because in December of that year, the current DNC chair, Paul Kirk, said he'd be stepping down. As soon as Brown announced he was running as Kirk's replacement, he received significant backlash. According to Brown's daughter, Tracy, Louisiana State Chair James J. Grady told Brown that voters wouldn't be comfortable with him in this position of power. He said they risked the South seceding from the party entirely. Louisiana Senator John Bro also told Brown he wasn't right for the job. Bro said it would send the wrong message if a black man were to lead the Democratic Party. This was the first time Brown had experienced such glaring racism in his career. Those who once supported him now told him he was overstepping boundaries. It was a heartbreaking realization. Despite being in their tax bracket, he wasn't earning the same respect as his white counterparts. The worst of it came during a DNC meeting in Atlanta. As the candidates for chair were announced one by one, they were greeted with standing ovations. Instead, when Ron Brown's name was called, he walked on stage to silence. He was met with blank stares and looks of disgust. Brown later said of that moment, I felt like a penny waiting for change. But this wasn't enough to thwart him. Instead, he did what he knew best. He called every DNC member who'd shunned him in Atlanta and sweet-talked them into support. 
He pitched his plans for the next presidential election and spoke about reuniting their divided party. It also helped that he was neither a liberal nor a conservative. He appealed to both sides of the spectrum. Brown won over the members one by one. In February 1989, he was unanimously voted as the first black chair of the Democratic National Committee. But he had his work cut out for him. His number one task was making sure a Democrat was named president in the next election. Meanwhile, Brown hired younger members, people of color, and more women to help run the party. He showed drive and passion for every electoral race, local, state, or otherwise. He raised more money for the DNC than anyone else had before. By the 1990s, Brown was the most powerful Democrat in America. But now he prepared for his most important task to date, finding the perfect presidential candidate. He knew America needed someone they could trust, someone they respected who could also raise money, carry a campaign, and attract a wide audience, someone who would make Ron Brown look like a superstar. That man was Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. Coming up, Brown's career in the White House leads to his devastating demise. Now, back to the story. After becoming the first black chair of the Democratic National Committee in 1989, Ron Brown felt consumed with purpose. His number one goal was getting a Democrat elected as president. After vetting multiple candidates for the role, the 45-year-old governor of Arkansas seemed like the best fit. Bill Clinton had indisputable leadership qualities. He knew how to handle the press on difficult topics and was beloved by many in the DNC, including the man who mattered most, Ron Brown. In October 1991, Clinton stepped up to the challenge. In the months following, he gained a strong lead over the other Democrats in the primaries. Brown encouraged the other candidates to drop out of the race and throw their weight behind Clinton. He felt the focus should be on beating President George Bush Sr., not members of their own party. But Governor Clinton was a ticking time bomb. At the height of his campaign, news broke about his alleged affair with singer and actress Jennifer Flowers. The starlet came forward, claiming she met Clinton while reporting at KARK-TV in 1977. The two had a 12-year relationship, which Clinton denied. Many Democrats insisted Brown ditch Clinton. He still had time to search for a new candidate. Amongst those voices was the matriarch of the party, Pamela Harriman. Harriman was a major Democratic fundraiser and a confidant of Brown's. She didn't believe Clinton could survive the scandal. Even if he did, he tarnished the party's reputation. Brown ignored her concerns and remained loyal to Clinton. This proved to be a risky but shrewd move. Despite the scandal, Clinton swept the primaries. Now the nominee had to beat the incumbent president, George H.W. Bush. In 1992, the United States was struggling to recover from a terrible recession. The wealthy Bush seemed out of touch with the American people. He spent more time on foreign policy than reinvigorating the economy. Brown saw this as an opportunity to push Clinton ahead. The governor's campaign drilled the need for economic growth. 
something Clinton had accomplished in Arkansas. This, along with his charisma and confidence, won over the hearts of America. Bush was not re-elected for a second term. The election went to Bill Clinton. This election is a clarion call for our country to face the challenges of the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the next century. To restore growth to our country and opportunity to our people. To empower our own people so that they can take more responsibility for their own lives. To face problems too long ignored from AIDS to the environment to the conversion of our economy from a defense to a domestic economic giant. And perhaps most important of all, to bring our people together as never before so that our diversity can be a source of strength in a world that is ever smaller, where everyone counts and everyone is a part of America's family. Now that Brown had an all-access pass to the White House, he fantasized about which role he'd play next. Secretary of State? Chief of Staff? U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations? The possibilities were endless. Deep down, Brown really wanted to be the first black president of the United States one day. Any position that could give him that leverage would be ideal. But it was all up to Clinton. In the weeks leading up to his inauguration, Brown met with the president-elect at the Hay Adams Hotel in D.C. It was the day Brown had been waiting for, the offer that would change his career forever. Except Brown didn't anticipate the words that followed. Clinton wanted him to be U.S. Secretary of Commerce, and he needed Brown to accept or decline the role by morning. Brown wasn't displeased. He just wasn't sure how he felt about the role. So he quickly phoned his friend Jim Dessler at the DNC headquarters and told him about the offer, to which Jim replied, quote, I'm really embarrassed about asking you this, but what does a commerce secretary do? Brown wasn't entirely sure himself, but he was going to find out. After accepting the position, Brown learned that the Secretary of Commerce role was a perfect fit. He'd help grow the U.S. economy by expanding into new international markets, a skill he'd acquired through his trade missions with Patton, Boggs & Blow. As with any cabinet position, Brown needed to be officially approved by the Senate first. He had to familiarize himself with the many departments he'd oversee, from the U.S. Weather Service to the Patent and Trademark Office to the Office of Travel and Tourism. It was a massive undertaking, but Brown's confidence never wavered. However, there was one setback. Brown's former representation of the fascist Duvalier regime. On the Senate floor, Brown executed his defense flawlessly. It wasn't the first time he had to safeguard a morally questionable decision, and it wouldn't be the last. Brown highlighted all of the benefits that had come from his representation of Haiti. He explained to the Senate committee how he'd helped to install the Peace Corps in Haiti and convinced Duvalier to re-examine his policies on human rights. Brown was approved, but controversy would follow him for the rest of his career. One of his most important jobs as Commerce Secretary was to help American companies expand their businesses overseas. Brown was constantly organizing trade missions and traveling the world. Meanwhile, the country's top CEOs were dying to get a seat on those planes. 
Brown created new opportunities in unprecedented nations like Malaysia, Senegal, and Chile. He brought in $40 billion worth of new business throughout his career. Despite the revenue, Brown continually found himself in hot water. For starters, he didn't agree with Clinton on certain decisions, like the one happening with Arms Corps. This was a state-owned South African business that allegedly shipped weapons to Iran, a large violation of the South African Arms Accord. Essentially, Brown thought it was in the United States' best interest to not intervene, but Clinton insisted on getting involved. The president also told Brown to stay away from business in Colombia, but the secretary pushed back. Reminiscent of his relationship with Haiti, Brown insisted that international trade would help the people of Colombia, citizens who were largely oppressed by the illegal drug industry. And as usual, Brown got his way. Outside of the Oval Office, Brown faced serious threats to his reputation. A conservative publication accused him of accepting a bribe from the Vietnamese government. Allegedly, this payment was meant to convince the Clinton administration to lift their trade embargo. On top of that, Attorney General Janet Reno had her eye on Brown. After Brown misfiled a financial disclosure report, Reno believed he was concealing payments from a former associate named Nolanda Hill. She believed this was another exchange for his influence on Capitol Hill. Brown was complicating the Clinton administration in more ways than one. With his reputation floundering, many advised Clinton to replace the Secretary of Commerce. Whether or not the president planned to take that advice is uncertain. In April 1996, Brown embarked on a trade mission to Croatia. The nation was rebuilding after a brutal civil war, and Brown saw this as an opportunity for U.S. companies like Boeing, an aerospace company, and Enron, an energy corporation, to get in on the ground floor. And Brown had other business to attend to in Croatia. His itinerary included a meeting with the president, Franjo Tuzman. He'd also be leading the negotiations between international businessmen. The meeting with President Tuzman was set to take place in the capital city of Zagreb. But at the last minute, the Croatian government suggested Brown fly to the city of Dubrovnik to meet with him instead. On the morning of April 3, 1996, the U.S. ambassador to Croatia, Morris Reed, was scheduled to fly with Brown and his team. But Brown asked him to stay back in Zagreb. He needed him to handle a conflict with Enron. Reed promised he'd get the job done and join Brown in Dubrovnik later that day. That never happened. At around 6 a.m., Brown took a 40-minute flight to Tuzla, Bosnia. It was a quick stopover where he said hello to the troops at a nearby U.S. Army base. Brown dropped off a few hundred McDonald's hamburgers to thank them for their service. Then he got back on the plane to head to Dubrovnik. A little before 2 p.m., Brown boarded the military passenger jet, the same plane that had transported First Lady Hillary Clinton on her European travels a month before. Despite the wind and rain in Croatia, the pilots made contact with Dubrovnik's ground control around 2.54 p.m. They displayed no signs of distress or indication that anything had malfunctioned on the plane. And yet, 
It was the last time anyone heard from the crew. Minutes later, the jet disappeared from radar. By 3 p.m., Morris Reed had beaten Ron Brown to the tarmac, the first indication that something was off. Reed knew firsthand that Croatia was a war-torn country, operating with outdated technologies and systems. He suspected that it was only a delay, but it wasn't. Ron Brown's plane had collided with St. John's Hill. That afternoon, Alma Brown got a call from Clinton. He said that her husband's plane had gone missing in Croatia. American search crews scoured the nearby Adriatic Sea for evidence. Alma's first thought was that the plane had been shot down. Clinton told her there was no indication of that. But she may have been on to something. Later that day, a Croatian villager reported an explosion near St. John's Hill. The rescue teams narrowed down their search. All through the night, they combed the location and uncovered the wreckage of the jet. Ambassador Reed was among the search and rescue teams, trying to locate survivors. With the discovery of each dead body, he lost more and more hope. Then, amid the ash and the rubble, Reed spotted a familiar face. It was Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown. Neither he nor the other 34 passengers had survived. Despite the impact, Brown's body remained intact. Aside from chemical burns and lacerations on his face and torso, Brown's injuries reportedly didn't appear to be lethal. What may have killed him was the alleged 45 caliber bullet hole through his head. Next time, we'll explore a few theories surrounding Brown's past, the plane crash, and his enemies. Conspiracy theory number one, Ron Brown was wildly corrupt, taking on seductive mistresses and accepting life-altering bribes. Conspiracy theory number two, Brown's plane crash was not accidental and may have been instigated by foreign powers. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, the Clintons ordered the hit on the Commerce Secretary themselves. Was Ron Brown's death caused by outdated equipment, bad weather, and faulty aerial maps? Or was there something more nefarious happening behind the scenes? Perhaps Brown was nothing more than a scapegoat, a political fall guy who took Washington's darkest secrets down in that plane with him. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with part two on Ron Brown. Out of the many sources we used, we found The Life and Times of Ron Brown by Tracy Brown helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Nick Zwart and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Thank you. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host Greg for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.